Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for tuning in. Just a reminder off the top that if you have uh, listened to this show and potentially even enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to me if you considered giving us a review on iTunes. Each review allows us to reach new listeners, and uh, I continue to be told that there is some algorithm in which iTunes promotes shows where there are reviews, good or bad. Uh, it's just about it's a numbers game. So if you could do that, it would be much appreciated, or even just consider doing that. Uh, this week on the show, we had the very talented writer and professor Alyssa Wilkinson. Alyssa currently serves as the chief film critic for Christianity Today, where she writes prolifically and intelligently about everything movies and culture. In one recent week alone, Alyssa wrote about Lemonade and Beyonce, interviewed the great Terrence Davies, and reviewed Tom Hanks in that strange Daybaggers adaptation. When she's not writing at Christianity Today, or CT as she calls it, she works as an assistant professor of English at the King's College in Manhattan, teaching criticism, postmodern theory, cultural anthropology, and more. She's also a frequent contributor to Rolling Stone, Vulture, RogerEbert.com, and Pacific Standard. And in case that wasn't enough, she just released her first book, co-written with her friend Robert Joustra, called How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, and Politics at the End of the World. The point is, she's very busy. Moreover, Alyssa is one of the few working writers that manages to write honestly about pop culture with a Christian religious bent. She's never preachy or didactic, throwing some Christian agenda down your throat. Instead, Alyssa works diligently to be fair and balanced, to evaluate films on their own terms while still not denying or downplaying her own beliefs. And so while she was visiting San Francisco, it was a real pleasure to sit down with her and talk about being homeschooled, moving to New York City in her early 20s, and avoiding being categorized as just another Christian writer, and a whole bunch more. So, finally, here is Alyssa Wilkinson. Like apparently you need ten seconds of silence. Room tone, yeah. Room tone. Yeah. Have you ever been on a film set? Uh yeah. Oh, yeah. They uh, always do that at the end of a like a shot. At the end of a shot. Yeah. Yeah, because then they can adjust the sound. It yeah. was the weirdest thing ever the first time I saw it. When were you on a film set? Well, Tom used to work in the Oh, okay. Yeah, See, so, I don't know any of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I used to be on set all the time. All the time. I was on the Boardwalk Empire set. Really? 
What was he doing there? He worked the first season. Oh. He was the locations guy. So oh, okay. I got to see Martin Scorsese directing, which was pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, what what happens on set? There? Uh, he hides. Really? Uh, Scorsese, yeah. He's like a total doesn't want to be seen on set person. So like he directs from monitors. Really? Yeah. That show never really worked out though, didn't it? Like, didn't no. they stop? Well, it went for four seasons, I think. Yeah. I, but I, I always thought it was fine. Yeah, so we never watched it past the pilot. Um, really? Yeah, we just never got around to it. But um, the wrap party for the first season was held on the boardwalk, oh, which uh, they built in Greenpoint. Um, it, it was like half a boardwalk, and then they had um, shipping crates and green screen on it. But it was really cool. They got like carnival games and like... It sounds really fun. It was really cool. Was, he, was Scorsese there hiding? Or? He was not, but all the um, actors were. So like... Michael Shannon was there, and um, who else was in that show? Anyhow, everyone who was in it. Where are you from? Uh, Albany, New York. Oh, I don't know anything about Albany. It's the capital of this state. That I didn't know, actually. Yeah, it's three hours north of New York City. So enough to where you're not going into town that often. Yeah, pretty much. I never went to New York as a kid. Really? I think I I was probably like... 12 but my grandparents brought us down to like see the rockets or something and oh and i loved it and then i didn't go back probably till i was in college and i went to college up there too and we would sometimes drive down for a day because you can you can take the train it's two and a half hours yeah. it's not so bad um and i loved it and was like i want to live here but so was- as a kid you had no idea of new york city like mm-hmm. was it purely through Movies and books and all that? Yeah, and mostly really old movies, because we didn't watch movies at all growing up. No, you didn't watch them? Uh, like some Jimmy Stewart movies, basically, and like um, I saw like the Anne of Green Gables movie that was on PBS uh, like a thousand times. Was this just like a rule in the house? That yeah, you... pretty much. I started watching movies seriously probably in 05, 06, and that was really good time for... 05, 06? Yeah. Wait, how how old are you then? I'm 32. So you didn't start watching movies till like people going to college. Yeah, well, like I moved to New York and I was living in the village and I was living like a block away from Film Forum and from yeah. IFC and I started dating um, Tom, who's my husband now, and he w- went to Emerson for film and so right, right, right. Um, he was like bringing me to see all these things and so like the first time I saw the three colors I was at Lincoln Center they were having a Kislowski festival and like when Robert Altman died IFC had a whole battery of his films that they showed and that's how I saw them for the first time Uh, which I think is kind of a cool way to it definitely is like the best way to do it yeah I mean I watch movies just like on Netflix or like the DVDs I owned when Back when Blockbuster was a, <laughs> was a thing, was a I know. Thing. Yeah. I did see like a small selection of romantic comedies. So mm. You've Got Mail, I probably saw a million times. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, and so you're kind of a blank slate then when you go in. I don't I right. didn't have any. I, so it's bad and it's good. So you were a blank slate until 21. What was what was high school, though? Uh, high school was. Did you go to. A, um, I was homeschooled. You were homeschooled. I was homeschooled. Yeah. You were about to. We were about to pass over that. There's, yeah. there's no way. <laughs> I forget we're that not, it's weird. Yeah. yeah. Sixth grade till I graduated from high school, I was homeschooled. So yeah. you never had a high school. No. Thing. No. No. Is this good or bad? Uh, both, I think. Okay. So my entire knowledge of high school comes from movies um, that I've yeah. seen since then. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so do you think it's like John Hughes movies? John Hughes movies, and then also like Mean Girls and Fast Times at Bridgemont High, and all these kinds of yeah. And I didn't. I mean, I watched Freaks and Geeks at one point and felt like that might have been a little closer to what my yeah. experience would have been. And I love that show. It's a great show. Oh, it's so good. So um, you're being homeschooled by your mom or your dad? Uh, well, my mom mostly, but okay. um, my parents didn't go to college, so it was a little bit of a. It was a strange time to be homeschooled. There weren't a lot of, like nowadays, all kinds of people are homeschooled. But back then it was like very much restricted to certain conservative religious people in general. And so. So you were doing it under the radar? um, No, it was legal, but it was, uh, it was, most people didn't do it and thought it was very strange. Whereas today it's like, if someone's homeschooled, it's not the most shocking thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but back then it was, it was definitely weird. And like, you wouldn't take your kids to the grocery store in the middle of the day. Cause you were afraid that like social services would be called or something like that. Cause 
there was a lot of people who just thought it was abusive and yeah. it can be, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't for you. Uh, no, it was great. I mean, it was good for me because I worked fast and was bored in the classroom, really bored in the classroom. Um, even though I went to a nice private school and, uh, so yeah, so I got to work at my own pace and I spent a lot of time reading and I s- kind of skipped the eighth grade, I guess, because of that, <laughs> which means I was done with high school a year early. Wow. Uh, yeah. Was it, was it, what was your relationship like with your mom? Uh, I think like good. Um, yeah. I mean, it's I'm just like a hard role to be in. I it imagine, is. Right. Cause it like is. you, you want to be a parent and yeah. you kind of want to be a friend, but then you also know yeah. you're an educator. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the older I got, um, the more she let me work independently and, uh, and then, you know, you would get sent the curriculum and then the answer keys. Mm. And so she could correct it, but she didn't have to like teach me things, which turned out to be great for college because yeah. in college you have to teach yourself all the time. Pr- pretty much exclusively. Yeah. Right. Especially if you have a bad professor or, um, I had a lot of professors who didn't really speak English very well. And so I'd have to go back and teach myself. So mm. I think that was good preparation. Was it hard to make friends? As a high schooler, yeah. yeah, yeah, I probably I had a handful of friends, like um, like a core three, people. like a few, um, yeah. Uh, but I didn't, you know, I didn't. I saw people at church mainly, so that was where our friendships were based. Were and, you like in a church youth group or anything like that? Uh, a little bit, but mostly it was music stuff, okay. uh, like choir, and then. I played in the band, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. You sound, this is very, you sound discouraged right now. Oh, it's, uh, it's funny to look back at because in ret- like at the time I didn't think anything of it. Uh, yeah. And now when I look back, at it, I'm like, that was good. And it also had downsides that I wish, you know, I would have loved to have participated in theater for instance. And there just was no way to do it. Or mm-hmm. there were, back then there were no sports to play as a homeschooled mm. kid. Do you so. feel like you missed out at all on, on like a social experience? Yeah, I think so. I think the only way I know that is that when I got to college, I, it it was, um, it was sort of anxiety inducing for a while. I imagine. Yeah. Everyone knew how to make friends except me, right? you know, and, or it felt that way, which is totally not true in retrospect, but yeah. I had like an extra level of inferiority complex. I get it. They Where all did you go to cool. school? Uh, for college, yeah. uh, I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which okay. is in Troy, New York. It is the oldest engineering school in the country. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. So what's happening? Like you go in day one, you're yeah. in a dorm? Uh, no, I lived at home. Oh, you lived at home? I did. Oh, so you yeah. commuted. I did, which was another level of being like a yeah. weird one, right? Yeah. Um, Jeez. Yeah. But okay. it was, I mean, it was a good program and um, RPI is a very weird, weird school to go to. It's all science and engineering, mm. which means that you get a very particular subset of people there. Right. Uh, and we had no like arts majors or English majors to balance it out. It was just science and engineering. Did you say hi to anyone that first day of class? No. Those yeah. are hard. That's a hard setting because there's so many people. Yes. They're like when there's that many people, no one's saying anything no. really to yeah. each other. And they're sitting with their roommate or somebody they met at orientation. Right. And I had only kind of been part of that. Huh. And then everyone starts rushing Greek oh, organizations, yeah. and I wasn't going to do that. But it was a funny campus because it's almost all guys. Okay. So there were, I think, when I was there, there were thirty-four fraternities and three sororities. Oh. Yeah, it was like a very disproportionate school to be at. Very disproportionate. It was very strange. It um, doesn't sound great. It's you know once you get used to it, it's fine. It's, yeah. it's good. Uh, it's a good preparation for going into technology and film criticism, as it turns out. Yeah. There's <laughs> just no women. Um, just that, that's another issue. Yeah, it is. That's another topic. I yeah. Think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, eventually I figured it out, I guess. You guess? At a certain point, did it feel okay? Yeah. It becomes normal really fast. And I'm not a big extrovert, so not having a ton of friends was fine. And eventually kind of they started, We, you know, you meet people and then you start hanging yeah. out or you have a group project together or whatever is there a part because you're going to an engineering school mm-hmm. so what was the game plan there uh well my parents were determined that i would go to college because they didn't and that i would go to school and get a for something that i could get a job in right so i went in for information technology which this was 2001 when i and when i was a freshman 
And at the time, nobody knew what that was. Like literally I had to explain it to people every time I said that was my major. Um, but the idea was like, oh, you'll get a job in IT and you'll make lots of money and you'll be this well off. This is all true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And so I did that and minored in computer science and be, I was a coder and like a yeah. software designer. For four years. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of years afterwards. Yeah. So, so when does that change come? Um, so I got a job on Wall Street. Uh, as a business analyst. I'm, wow. Yes. And That's good. You're yeah. like moving, you're quite literally moving to the big city yeah. and working on Wall Street. Yes. A it long, was, such a long ways away from Albany. Yes. It was, it was such a typical yeah. story. And so I got the job and I, I moved there. And then about six months into it, I realized finance just bored me to death. Was it just not like stimulating at all? It wasn't stimulating. I didn't, it was so big was the problem. I was at Bank of America on the investment oh. banking side, which is just the most enormous company. Or if I had been placed on a desk where I had a lot to do, I probably would have been into it. But I didn't have a lot to do. My boss worked in Chicago and most of the team was in Mumbai. So I didn't <laughs> speak to anyone all day. I was like data processing, basically, which was definitely not what I had studied right. um, or thought I was going to be doing. And also, I just didn't find the world of finance interesting enough to want to climb up the ladder at all. Did you know that before going into it, though? No, I had no idea. So you did those four years of school and thought, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I can do this. Yep. Really? Yeah. And I there are aspects of it that I really like. I still find software and database design really intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, I liked coding. I even kind of liked debugging because I like the problem-solving aspect. But it, when you apply it to a field... You kind of have to pick a field that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And finance was just where the jobs were. And in the meantime, I applied to graduate school just because I couldn't figure out how else I was going to stop doing this. Right. So you're smart. You <laughs> make the next move before you've yes, made I've, the next move. Yes. I've never quit a job without another job yeah. in sight. So I applied to NYU. By the way, this doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> this is exactly what I thought of you before we start talking. I hope that's a good thing. It's 100% a good thing. Um, yeah, I applied to NYU and then I applied to jobs at NYU because being me, I figured if I have a job at NYU, they'll pay for my tuition. Of course. And they did. And so I got a job <laughs> as a writer in the IT department, which was pretty much the perfect bridge job. And what are you studying? I studied, a, uh, it's a master's program in humanities and social thought. So it's, which is just a fancy way to a say master's it's. master's program in humanities. And social thought. And social thought. It's an interdisciplinary program. You go in and you can take anything you want in the graduate school and then you write a thesis. Right. So I studied 20th century intellectual history for the most part. Okay. But I was encountering all these ideas and people for the first time in grad school. Right. Like, it took me probably half a semester to realize that. Uh, the adjective Cartesian meant something about Descartes. <laughs> it just wasn't obvious. And everyone in the classroom had, you know, bachelor's degrees in the humanities. And so I felt like a total newbie. I read Wikipedia a lot to try and catch up. I still read Wikipedia. Yeah, it's the best way to, I tell my students, you can't cite it, but you should definitely read it. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it was a good program. It only took a year and a half to get through. And mm -hmm. I took some great courses with people who turned out to be better than I realized yeah. they were going to be. Now you're in New York City, yeah. which is like in part godless. Yeah. Well, so they say. <laughs> Sporadically godless. Yes. Um, and like you're 22, 23. Yeah. I moved there when I was 21. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wound up going, I had grown up in like one of these great big churches where you can kind of be anonymous if you want. And I wasn't because I was always up on stage playing things and like yeah. I worked for the music director for a couple years in college. And so like my family was very integrated into right. that place. You were like the poster child. I was. Yeah, yeah. for real. And there were my community like pretty much exclusively. And then, um, yeah, when I moved, I decided I wanted to go to a tiny church, which mm. was a good move. And a lot of churches in New York are tiny and I wouldn't, right. New York's such a big place. So I wound up going to one that was down the street from me because my roommate was going to it. And I met my husband there, uh, though that was kind of by accident. Um, that wasn't intentional. Um, and it was a place filled with artists, actually. And I can kind of attribute a lot of my eventual move into what I do now, partly based on just going there. Really? Like, Sufjan Stevens went there for a while. Huh. And, like, um, there's a couple other, like, fairly well-known bands where members had, like, lived in New York and 
almost all of them had gone through there. Mm. There were painters who were like fairly successful and photographers. And so encountering people who took art seriously as like a thing you actually did with your life uh, was so different from coming from a place where art was like a hobby at best, you right. know, and kind of a silly hobby. Um, I think that made a big difference for me. I imagine just yeah. the quantity of people and seeing them, you know, in a, in like a environment I would have still considered safe or sanctioned or something like that. Mm. So, and they were doing things that were a little on the border of what like my family would have considered acceptable, whatever that looks like. What does that mean? Uh, you know, like if you, you know, like sort of the classic, no swear words, no, you know, sex, no whatever, like no talking about those things, pretend they don't exist. Right. These people were not doing that. Um, and I think that helped me sort of just see a wider world than mm. the one that had existed for me. Did you find that you were before that previously trapped in the world your parents had created? Uh, I mean, the thing is, I was just saying this to a friend, being a parent, you like create the universe for your child. Yeah. And they don't even know anything else exists. So, like, weirdly, I think of this and think of dog tooth. Okay. Um, because, not, I mean, dog tooth is like really yeah. disturbing, but um, in dog tooth, right, the, they've actually made it so that the kids think certain words mean things that they don't mean something else outside, right? right. And so it's not, I mean, that one feels malicious, but. Um, you know, it's not so much that you're trapped, just that you don't even know there's anything out there mm -hmm. to not be, to to do or to be. I remember being really excited or just really? feeling like my brain got turned on finally, yeah. you know, like I had finally, I, I, I remember being on the subway and seeing people reading and I love to read, but I was always like the person who reads, you know? Right. And in New York, it was just like everybody was pre-Kindle, so you could see what everyone was reading yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh man, everyone reads books here. That's amazing, <laughs> you know? And it's that's like rare other places. Uh -huh. And I remember thinking like, oh, th this is my people. And I felt at home like instantly. Right. Like this was comfortable. I think I had always kind of resisted a little the idea that like, oh, we can't talk about this thing or like this person is all bad because we disagree with them on politics or something like that. So right. being in a diverse, pluralistic area felt like, okay, I can live here. This makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. You started writing around that time, right? I did. Well, I had kind of been writing a little, but I started writing film criticism a little bit more um, sort of during that process. I was writing for Paste a bunch right. at the time, which was great. Um, then I finished my master's at NYU and started adjuncting at King's, which is where I teach now. At 25. At 25. Which is really early to yeah. start teaching. It was insane. My classroom, my first classroom was in the second basement of the Empire State Building, which is like, uh, most people never get inside the Empire State Building and I had like a pass, you know, it was crazy. Yeah, that's maddening. It was totally crazy. What are your, what are your students saying to like you being 25 and teaching them. Well, they have no idea, of course, you know. Right. And the weird thing you will... But you look young. Yes. And I still you look, look young. young. now. Like, yes. you're, like there's no way. Okay. But you know what the weird thing is? What? You're so conditioned by education to just believe that the person standing up in front of the classroom right. is an adult. <laughs> like when you think about high school teachers, some of them are like 21, right? And these kids are 15 yeah. and yeah. they're not, there's almost no age difference. And so for me, it was pretty much the same, um, but it was also a freshman class. So they were new and I was new and everyone was new and we just kind of muddled along. But I, I will never forget getting up in front of them the first day. Yeah, that day like, one. I, I cannot I hear believe. Because my dad's a teacher, so he tells me about this all the time. Oh, it was day one. It's nuts. Because you get in there and everyone looks scared and you're scared and you're like, so. <laughs> and now it's like, whatever, I just wander in and it's fine. Do you write but... on the chalkboard that first day? Like, <laughs> hi, my name is Alyssa. You're <laughs> Professor Wilkinson. Professor Wilkinson, yes. I am your teacher. Yeah, no, it was very strange. It was very, very strange. But it went really well, and I did actually have a great class of students, and I'm still in touch with a bunch of them, mm -hmm. um, because now, of course, they're older than I was then. Um, yeah, and I taught part-time for a year, and then they hired me full-time because I they liked right. me. And, what class were you teaching then? Uh, it was the equivalent of like English Comp 1, but the way we teach it there is as a... Um, kind of like a creative nonfiction slash essay writing right. workshop. So it's like every week you write 
essays and we workshop them the mm. way that you would in a workshop class. Did you feel qualified? No. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, I speak the language. I write well. That, I understand that, that, English grammar. That answer changed so quickly. <laughs> well, the qualification is such a weird, like I know the material and I can teach, but how to teach another person to write right. is so hard. I read books and I like listen to lectures and, you know, kind of freaked out a bunch and um, I'm good in public speaking, but that's not public speaking because it's like, right. you have to lead people and you want to see them get better. I think I've modulated my expectations a lot. Mm. Also discovered that they didn't know grammar at all and I had to teach that. And so just kinda. a basic grammar check in. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, but the cool thing is in general, college students know when they don't know how to use a semicolon and want to learn. And mm. so <laughs> if you yeah. say there's just one rule, then they're like, what? Why did nobody ever tell me that? And then they're <laughs> grateful. So that was good. What's yeah. the biggest um, pet peeve you have as a teacher? Oh, with students? Yeah. Um, I hope your students listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them will. Hey, guys. Um, uh, you know, it. it's... It's usually it's I hate to call it even a pet peeve. It's more like it makes me sad uh, when I have students who who are obviously really smart and engaged and they even like come to class or they come to office hours or ever and then they just never turn in work. Mm. And I don't want to fail them. Like I know they're smart and I think it's a writer's block thing. I think in retrospect, like I know grownups who just freeze up and can't do things. And I think that's what's happening. But also. Right. But I don't think you subscribe to that. I don't subscribe to that. Yes, I know this because <laughs> you retweeted something of Steve Martin. Yes. Yes, I did. I do research. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't believe in writer's block at all. I don't either. It's yeah. it's fear. Like, I think there are, I think if you say you have writer's block, it's because you have the luxury yeah. of it. I'm like, what is the Steve Martin quote? Uh, uh, writer's block is just a thing. Writers, whiny, whiny people come up with so that they can drink have an excuse to drink yeah. yeah which i i mean i definitely but like just own it you know yeah like i'm or just drink and write or just well that is my preferred method actually is it oh yeah just like a little bit or like yeah what, what, um what? I, you know i've refined my technique over the years okay so let's let's start with the beginning of the technique yes. where, where did it start um it started because i because uh, coffee shops are really hard to work at in New York because you always feel like you're hogging a table unless you just keep drinking coffee and right. then you're just wired. And bars, by contrast, are pretty empty most of the day. Yeah. Bartenders are super happy to see you during the day because they don't, otherwise, they're just sitting around doing nothing. Mm. Um, so, are you writing film criticism at like yeah. 25, 26 at bars? Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Really? Yeah. During the day? Well, you know, at the time. Yeah, I guess so. Like, you, you know, around... There's definitely no one in there. It's like a Horace and Pete situation. <laughs> yes, basically. I mean, if you show up around two, that's usually about the right time. And I don't really write in the morning. I, I don't, can't really write anything in the morning. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then I went for a stretch a couple years ago where I only had time to write at night. Well, like in the early evening. So I would go straight from the office to my local down there. And the bartenders knew me really well and would kind of like, like like just keep me supplied, but like just keep an eye on me basically. And yeah. so, and then I would write whatever I need to write that day for a few hours. So you have like a beer an hour and you can pretty much go for a while or I can go for a while. Yeah. Um, and I have two other bars that I do that at as well, where the bartenders know me and know like what I'm doing there. And you don't get distracted. No, no, Really? but there's so yeah. many, like then there, then by nighttime people are coming in yeah. for sure. I have to kind of, Usually quit around eight, uh, most places, but I select places based on kind of when, Popularity. when the, well, when I know the loud crowd shows up. Right. Um, and if you pick a place that has a lot of regulars, that usually won't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you'll have like a nice little chat about what you're working on, but then they know to leave you alone. Right. Uh, which is not the case at every bar. No. In any, anywhere. I'm sure you've had people who are like, want to have a long conversation oh about the article you're writing. Well, or worse, when they find out you're a film critic, they want to tell you about movies. Oh, yeah. It's just the worst. Is it how your opinion is wrong or their opinion is right? Or have you seen this movie? And 
by the way, you need to see this movie now. All of the above. Yeah. All, <laughs> and then and, and expressing shock when you haven't seen it. Or sometimes they'll say their favorite movie is X. And, the, and you know that's a terrible movie. And the only way to avoid getting into an argument about it is to say you haven't seen it. Oh, that's smart. Mm-hmm. See, I'm not that smart. I'll just start <laughs> talking about how I don't like that movie. Well, when you're on deadline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See. Yeah. So you refine the technique. And mm-hmm. um, my favorite place in Manhattan that I go to pretty frequently, they like will bring me coffee and stuff too. So I can, there's a, there's a finely tuned way to. A coffee alcohol mix. Yeah. You go, uh, you know, usually red wine and coffee and red wine and coffee. Wow. And then whiskey. Wow. You have this all worked out. Oh yeah. This yeah. is great. I need yeah. to try some of that. Oh yeah. I should probably have a book about, about this. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would uh, sell. Uh, probably to, to writers, <laughs> except they like can't a... afford to pay for it. But... Yeah, I know. Well, that's you've got to be a regular. When did you start writing at Christianity today? Uh, oh, I just saw this the other day pop up in Time Hop. I think seven years ago yesterday, I published my first review. Really? Yeah. What was it of? Brides Had Revisited. What is that? Yeah, with that Ben movie. Wishaw and Matthew oh. Good. Is that who? Yeah. I liked it. That's an actor. I don't know. If, I've never seen yeah. this movie. Yes. Yeah. It's um good movie. E- e- uh, well, I would have to see it now. I, I would never trust my opinion from back then. I liked it then. I know <laughs> the novel pretty well. So, um, and uh, like I wrote something on it in grad school. So I was like familiar with the novel that it's based on. Mm. I liked it, but I think it may have just been Ben Wishaw's amazing. And so I was blinded. Why wouldn't you trust your opinion back then? Uh, <laughs> Because seven years ago, whatever I thought about movies... You were 25. You're, I was 25, yeah. I. Um, you make it sound like it's a regrettable age. No. No, I don't think any critic w- really trusts their opinion from a decade ago. Yeah. Ever. I mean, I, don't, I know... Maybe a minute-to-minute thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just I just did this top 10 of the century list that everybody's been doing. The century. The 16 years of the century. Yeah. Um. But like tomorrow, it'll be a different list. And I instantly remembered 15 movies that I would have put on the list as soon as I submitted it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that's good. Like if you if you actually agree with all of your opinions from all of time, then you're probably not very good as a critic. Mm. Uh, that's true. Yeah, which is why people should always revisit and kind of hold them loosely, I think. Right. But that's the fun of it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so if I saw it today, I might have a totally different opinion about it. Or I might not. I don't know. Other people seemed not to like the movie, so who knows? <laughs> when you're breaking into Christianity today, yeah. uh, is it a challenge to balance... Like film criticism and religion stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, CT has been always good, thankfully, even before I got there, about letting people write film criticism first and pull out the Christian stuff or just generally religious stuff second. Um, mm-hmm. Let movies be movies, basically. Right. Um, which is really, really remarkably unique in the uh, religious publication field. I don't even think anyone else really does that at all. Mm. Um, It's also super challenging because in general, the average CT reader, in my experience, wants to know instantly like how this film applies to them in some way, which lots of films do not apply to you. (laughs) You They're just, they're works of art that you need to experience. So so it was challenging, but not, and actually Brideshead Revisited was a good one to start with because it's a very deeply Catholic book and it's oh, okay. like, wears that very much on its sleeve and that's what it's about. So it was an easy way to kind of get in, but I've reviewed everything since then. And like, I imagine, yeah, plenty of, I was just reading my old review of Waltz with Bashir, which is so funny to me that I even reviewed that for CT because it's kind of obscure, but, yeah. um, but I, there's nothing that could have been published anywhere. There's a is there a comment section still or there was not right? anymore. There was okay. I remember this. Yes, I would sometimes read your reviews and then I'd read the comments, which <laughs> yes. were also additional fun bonus. Oh man, even better are if you go to when they post the link to the Facebook page. Oh great, those are a hoot. Those hoot are and a half. A hoot yeah. and a half. Yeah, some lady was really really mad that we had reviewed Thor two. Yeah, uh, what, what did you say about Thor two? I don't even remember. Uh, but she was just mad because it's a movie about a false god, <laughs> according to uh, her. <laughs> I imagine you're getting these comments a lot, though, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Almost always we get one that says, uh, you know, what does this have to do with Christianity? It's right. like, well, you're a person who, like, lives on the planet and, you know. This is a fact. 
Yes. They do live on the planet. Yeah. And you kind of have to care a little bit anyhow. Um, Yeah. And then there are other ones that are like more obviously applicable. So like I can always see the kind of impending storm coming whenever a movie is announced that Uh my audience will have strong opinions about. Yeah, that's true. I can imagine that being the case. Do you find um, like that you're sometimes categorized one way as a writer? Yes. And, and breaking free from that is a bit challenging yeah it has been i so over the last two years i've picked up a lot of clips elsewhere many of which had nothing to do with religion yeah. at all what and do your parents think about you writing for rolling stone uh i i have had the strangest experiences with people talking about rolling stone so everyone like my age and younger thinks it's super cool because i think we all just kind of read it as like it's another great culture publication with you know great writing and whatever and everyone older than me, uh, like, I have had five different people say to me, you are probably the only person who's ever had a byline in both CT and Rolling Stone. And I was like, that might be true, but it was weird to me that that was their first reaction. Like, that was what they said. Yeah. And I've realized that uh, Rolling Stone is still so tied to the counterculture in a lot of people's minds that it just seems crazy. Right. Um, whereas I'm like, I'm just writing a feature about Kimmy Schmidt. Like, <laughs> I could do that for lots of different people. But um, the trouble with writing for a publication like CT has been that generally people, including publicists, have assumed that have assumed what my angle will be right. when that's not accurate. Um, and they don't tend to read like i i see a lot of people will post a link to something i've written and then i'll see a comment that's like i don't really care what christianity today has to say about x right it's like well okay like would you say that about most publications probably not and i can totally understand why people have that perception and i don't fault them at all but it's a why would you not fault them like i wouldn't i so i think it was instructive to me like i started reading publications that in my mind i would have never read before uh if someone posted a link to an essay Mm. um because i realized like you know like to me the byline is what matters but that might be because everyone i know is a freelancer and so we just publish everywhere and so i'm reading people and not publications so much um so I guess I understand it. But I also, it's like a weird prejudice, I guess, uh, that is merited, probably, but also really hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, people uh, who would normally read CT are very angry about some of the stuff that we publish in culture because they just, their idea is that we shouldn't be writing about it. How do you get around this? Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. Uh a lot of it has just been me like trying to dwell in both worlds and just be mm-hmm. like, you know, film is film and TV is TV. And there are interesting religious things to say about it. There are other things to, you know, say about it as well. Why don't we do all of that? Right. Um, and because my byline appears kind of on both sides of that divide, if it exists, it, I think it's helped a right. bit. Well, you definitely have, you, you're like, you've cornered a market mm-hmm. in a way. It's like it's kind of yeah, a beat like yeah. a, a christian beat yes. that you that you can do yeah well and i've cornered it in such a way that people approach me to write pieces that they like i've had several people say like i know what i think about this but i don't really care what i think about it i want to like hear what you think about it mm-hmm. and that's been fun and i think my take I, my take is in no way idiosyncratic it's just idiosyncratic for a working critic mm-hmm. um there are lots of people who think the same way I do, but a lot of them have been hiding for a really long time. Uh, and I think one really rewarding thing about doing what I'm doing is that they are coming out of the woodwork and saying, like, finally, someone said what I've been thinking right? and said it out loud and aren't afraid of being blackballed or whatever. Exactly. What what film critics would you read? Because I imagine yeah. like you would you would find, I'm sure plenty, you'd, I'm sure you'd find like, um, I don't know. Baldwin writing about movies interesting or yeah. James Agee or something like that. Mm-hmm. But like, did you find a film critic that you thought that person is doing kind of what I want to do? Uh, I imagine that was hard. It's hard. Yeah. There was a bunch of, there have been a bunch of critics that have been employed mostly by CT at various points. Right. Several of them don't write anymore um, for CT, but write for other publications. Um, so like, yeah, there's a there's a few floating around about, up there. Um, Stephen Gradenus. Overstreet. And Overstreet is yeah. a good friend of mine and um Peter Chataway. Mm-hmm. Um Overstreet the, was the first critic I read 
with a Christian bent that I thought, oh wow, okay, yeah, this is what this is what it could look like. Yeah, no, that's right. And he and I um, know each other and like uh, see each other pretty often whenever we're in the same city. And I think I took a lot of cues from him on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And just, it's like refreshing to have someone doing it and doing it also from an evangelical perspective, as opposed to a Catholic perspective, because it's just, you have different barriers to jump over. But older critics, like people, there's not a lot, there's not any of that, right? No. And no. And because there wasn't really a need for it for a long time, like you didn't have to justify going to the movies for in like the mid century. Well, I should rephrase that either. You just didn't go to the movies because it was morally wrong or you just went and saw everything like everybody else. What was the morally wrong part of going to the movies? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I, it, it was similar to the theater thing. Like there was a, you know, you shouldn't go to the theater and it was cause it was vulgar a lot of times mm-hmm. or because it would stir up emotions. Right. And you weren't supposed to like have these emotions or something like that. You weren't like supposed that. to have those emotions or emotions. Well, total. not connected to secular entertainment. Okay. Um, so it was the same reason you wouldn't go see a, a play or, um, you know, way back in the 19th century, like read a novel. Novels were like vulgar entertainment right. and you weren't supposed to engage with them. Um, and I think, you know, but there, but Hollywood had a long history with clergy um, of all stripes, which is beautifully demonstrated in Hail Caesar. Mm. That scene uh, in the beginning of Hail Caesar, where he kind of walks into the boardroom and there's the priest and the rabbi That's and right. the two ministers. That's like basically what used to happen. Um, so, so because clergy were so involved for a long time, um, then people kind of knew what to go see and. There were only how many movies a year coming out, anyhow, nothing like today. Yeah. Um, and the role was totally different, I think. Um, but then, you know, critics weren't critics weren't working from the same perspective that they do today. Right. But at a certain point, Christians wanted to engage. Yeah, they did. And uh, but it was kind of a split. And it was like, well, I think you can basically trace this to the seventies, uh, uh, Schaefer. Francis Schaeffer um, was like a like a theologian who was like had been a fundamentalist, became more of an evangelical. He started this thing called Labrie, which is like a series of kind of commune slash study centers that are all over the world. And the first one was in Switzerland, and he talked to a lot of young people there in Switzerland. And then in the seventies, he came to the U.S. and he gave a series of lectures at Wheaton College in Illinois huh. that kind of blew open evangelicalism and the idea of culture and pop culture. Um, because they were still very much like old school, like insular. And his idea was like, we should watch Bergman movies and we should listen to the Rolling Stones. Um, and like, that's okay. And you can do that. And people t- like today constantly talk about him still as really? being the point where there was like an inflection point right there. And the lectures were created, were made into videos and there are books. And yeah, if you were to ask anyone, at all who kind of lives in the world of like evangelicalism and art, they would definitely cite Francis Schaeffer. I actually wrote my master's thesis on him at NYU. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So this yeah. is all coming together. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, uh, made a big difference for people thinking about film, but it also was the seventies, which, um, uh, like when you go back and watch film from the seventies, it's like kind of strange to see what we would consider art house fair, being the big blockbuster films mm. um, and like the kind of the film school generation. It blows my films. mind that Taxi Driver right? is a movie that a bunch of people went to go see. Yes. Like <laughs> big time, right? <laughs> and this is before the invention of the PG-13 designation. And so you get these like Metrograph in New York is doing this series this yeah. summer of like kind of WTF PG movies where yeah. you're like, how is the exorcist a PG movie? <laughs> right. So then you end up with this weird reaction where, and I think this is where my parents were coming from. They remembered PG movies as being like sometimes raunchy or having profanity right. or whatever. And so we weren't allowed to even watch them because it was like the rating doesn't matter, you know? And if it was an R rated movie, I mean, then it must be like basically porn. It must be porn. Yeah. yeah. And I, so I never saw an R rated movie until college. Yeah. Have we become more or less tame? Uh, more, I think. At filmmaking wise, I think in yeah. general. I think the the more granular the rating system has been, um like people talk as if things are less 
like as if they're more degenerate than they used to be, but I don't buy it one bit. Like I just don't buy it. Like if I think you can only say that if you have no knowledge of history, um, you know, <laughs> and you're passionate about this. I am because I get it all the time. Why is Hollywood so de- de- degenerate? Why does Hollywood hate Christians? Why does Hollywood hate families? I'm like, no, I don't. There's a lot of very conservative, very family kind of values that float mm-hmm. around in movies that, I mean, talk about like, Judd Apatow movies. They're some of the, in some ways, most conservative movies. They are. Um, They're very traditional. It's just that they're being made for people who find raunch funny, which is frankly Mm. many people, right? Right. But even he gets into like issues with gender roles Mm -hmm. all the time Mm -hmm. where he gets criticized for. Yeah, no, that's right. He's and and this does happen a lot. I think if you're watching TV or movies through a certain lens, you kind of notice anyhow that uh, Hollywood is nowhere near as progressive as a lot of people make it out to be. I think that the, what is true is that there's more of everything. So you, unless you're looking for good, solid sort of storytelling with whatever values it is that you're looking for, uh, you'll end up with like either bad Christian movies of which there are many mm-hmm. or mainstream schlock. Like I saw Independence Day last night and it's just, why? Well, because people are going to ask me about it. <laughs> do, you, do you watch stuff because people are going to ask you yeah, about it? Yeah, I do. Well, sometimes I don't watch it because people are going to ask me about it. I don't want to have to have an opinion. But Independence Day. It's it's bad. It yeah, was I, really bad. Do you think I needed? Do you think I needed to see that to know that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I knew. I feel like I needed to know the particular ways in which it was bad, though, so that I could articulate them. Because otherwise, people are like, "Oh, you're just a snooty like blockbuster hating critic," and I'm like, "No." <laughs> so you're so concerned with what people think uh, about your own like. I am concerned with people not writing off what I write for that reason. Because okay. I really am trying to do something when I, I write. And because of that, if they just write you off, they'll never read you again. It's almost like you're starting from a place of being guilty. Yeah, it is. I I kind of default to thinking that way. Because I'm not writing for an audience that takes for granted that movies matter. Like right. for them, it's still... I Every review I write, I have to start from the position of why why would it even matter for me to know anything about the movie? And I have to start there. Isn't it tiring to be like defensive? Yes, hugely, hugely, Quick hugely answer. tiring. Well, this is part of why I write for other people, though. Like, if I'm going to write a piece for Vulture, I don't have to defend the existence of pop culture in order to write the piece, and so it's a nice break in yeah. some ways. Um, or I wrote a piece recently on Rosemary's Baby and Black Swan for Oscilloscope's site. Yeah. And it was just like such a relief to not have to go in and be like, yes, there's evil, but you know, (laughs) like (laughs) it was just like, I love these films. I think they're really important and it's so nice to not have to defend Mm -hmm. existence. But at the same time, like I care about my people who I, you know, even people who maybe I wouldn't identify with in many ways anymore. They're still, it's like family, you know, and you want your family to, Mm -hmm. to, enjoy things that are wonderful and should be enjoyed and and then on top of it i know and i know it more now that i've been teaching for six years that students show up uh at the college partly because they've read what i've written and they like it it rang true with them but it doesn't fit with their background and they want to sort of that it it makes sense to them right i'm trying to stave off a generation of bad christian movies if i can help it (laughs) (laughs) that's a good thing yeah that's a good thing. Yeah, that's the hope. Do you think you're less Christian than those people? <laughs> no. No, I don't even know what do, that would mean. <laughs> because they think I, this is my assumption, yes. they think you're less Christian. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah, no, they definitely do. No, I don't think that even makes sense. I think I, what I realized, uh, I well, so when you grow up evangelical, often your level of like holiness is judged by what you don't do basically. And the older I've gotten, the more people I know who um, are from different denominations or different branches of Christianity, uh, which don't judge things that way at all. And, uh, and also it doesn't make sense. And I'm, I'm, it's not, I mean, no evangelical would agree that that's actually how it's judged, but that's functionally what happens. So I think that, um, you know, so like I grew up in a teetotaling household and now I write (laughs) at a bar. Um, But, you know, that's (laughs) 
at, at the end of the day, then I realized like that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, and like, I think being Christian has everything to do with like participating in the community and rituals of, of what, of the church and not really in like whether or not you watch R rated movies or like right. drop an F bomb sometimes or whatever. Mm. But there's yeah. still a part of you that remembers being the poster child. Oh yeah. 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 And you still have like the voice in the back of your head. I, my husband grew up evangelical, but a little more mainstream than I right. did. And I described that to him sometime, like, you know, still in the back of my head, there's always that voice. And he was like, that's terrifying. And I think it is, but if you can learn to kind of control it and then use it. Do like, you control the little voice? Yeah. Like I can now. And like, I know when I write, I'm listening to it to hear like, what is its objection and how can I, like, can I answer that objection with something reasonable? Then I do. And if I don't, if I can't, like if we're just fundamentally disagree, then we just fundamentally disagree. But so are there like two people in there? Is I guess so. Yeah. Two re- I have two readers. I have three readers in mind when I write for CT. One is the like, why do movies matter? Why are you writing about this? That has a swear word. It's bad person. Then there's the person, and this is a growing number of our readership, who is who likes movies, wants to have better taste and sort of understand and read movies better, um, and is Christian. So I write for them. And then there's the third category, which is grown, which is basically people who don't just want to know what a Christian perspective on this is without having to have it tell them what to think. So like whether or not they're religious in any way. Um, in some ways, that's how I, I read um, Tablet Magazine pretty regularly, which is a Jewish um, magazine, and they do some really good cultural commentary. And I kind of read it with the same thing in mind. It's mm-hmm. like I'm not Jewish, but I kind of want to know like what's a Jewish take on this thing. So that's those are the three readers in my head, and the pieces vary depending on what I'm writing. This about. sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting. But but I've gotten used to it, and I think it's good for my teaching. Because mm. I have all three of those people in my classroom. You remain productive for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get paid, so I have to. Yeah. Have to do it. <laughs> so the book. Uh, can we talk about the quote that you opened with? What was the quote? <laughs> <I'm> right here. <laughs> what? So the quote is in the beginning of your book, which I love the title: "How to Survive the Apocalypse." Yeah. You know, I thought um, it was cyclones. <laughs> be so great Z- i thought it was zombies cyclones faith and politics <laughs> like, all right i'm all in here yeah here we go by so robert uh joustra joustra yep so the quote is uh, in order to engage effectively in this many faceted debate one has to see what is great in the culture of modernity as well as what is shallow and dangerous well so in the book we're trying to it's sort of a we sort of do a bait and switch a little bit, but hopefully in a good way where we want to talk about apocalyptic pop culture. So we have zombies and Cylons in the subtitle uh, for Battlestar Galactica and the walking dead and game of Thrones is in there. Right. Um, But we're using it as a way to kind of like diagnose our modern condition, which you can tell a lot about a, a world through its apocalyptic literature. So in there, we wanted to think about um, the, the, philosopher that we use a lot is charles taylor and he always talks about pathologies of each age right which is like kind of sicknesses or potential sicknesses based baked into each age and his position is like our time is not any worse or any better than any other although you might make the argument that it it is better in some ways because you know we're not or you know people so it's anti-golden age thinking. Anti-golden age thinking. Um, and so for our age, he identifies a few um, that we kind of took and ran with, which is like, um, you know, so we're all about individuals and individual dignity, but that can also lead to like isolation, uh, which is not good for people or just total self-interest without interest in community at all, which I think we can see really working itself out in politics right now. Um, where people are kind of voting based on their feelings, but not so much based on what's good for other people. Um, So that's one big thing or this kind of anxiety about um, where, you know, we, we love our technologies and our conveniences, but we also are kind of anxious about them taking over us. Uh, You know, we take you over uh, me personally. I, um, I try not to let them. I, uh, you tweet a lot. I do tweet a lot. Yeah. But tweeting for me is like, 
completely water cooler conversation. Really? Yeah. And, and news. It's kind of how I keep up on things. Um, or know what to read, I think is a big part. I do know, like if I wasn't doing what I do as a writer, I would never be on Twitter mm. nearly as much um, as I am. Um, I hate Facebook and try not to go near it when I can. So it's like a purely professional tool. But it's a funny thing because as someone with a background in technology, I think about this all the time, you know, how technologies shape us and make us do certain things or act certain ways. Mm. Um and I, a couple of years ago, uh, I had to check my phone at a screening of Moneyball and we were supposed to, you know, put it, so we didn't, it was a press screening and they didn't want us to steal the movie, but my phone got stolen. No. Uh, yeah. I was the only one. And so I didn't have a phone for about a month and a half because they were going to replace it, but the new one was coming out. So I was like, I'll just wait. Yeah, um, six weeks. Yeah. And so I didn't have a phone for six weeks and I realized like there were some things that you know, the kind of compulsive email checking that I do yeah, um, that are not good for me at right. all. Do you find that to be productive? No, yeah. no. But it's addictive. It's addictive. I turned off alerts. So I turned off alerts on my mail and now I just check it when I remember, yeah. you know, but I don't have like bouncing at me or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah. that quote says our times are shallow and uh, they can be, can be. Yeah. And I think, like interaction between people can be shallow if they don't choose to make it not shallow. I think uh, we misinterpret shallowness for depth sometimes or mistake shallowness for depth um, because we're so used to experiencing things in a shallow way. Like we think we know who politicians are, but we don't because we're mm. not reading about them like reported pieces. Um, and we all know this if you write for the internet like clickbait is the way to make your living. That's unfortunately. true. And so depth doesn't get rewarded. Um, and because depth doesn't get rewarded, then we risk kind of ditching it all together. Mm. Um, and that is, I think something that is true of a, of a, of a fast age mm. um, or like news that was news two weeks ago. I don't even remember what it was. I right. Can't tell you. Yeah. And that's the shallowness. Would you characterize the worldview of this book as bleak? No, actually. No. Um, I think it's very hopeful. Uh, the big distinction we make in here is you're wading into like kind of bleak universes. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do talk about how uh, apocalyptic literature is supposed to be hopeful and throughout the ages. It's been hopeful because it's about like everything has gotten so bad, but now it's going to get wiped out and we can do it fresh and new. Do you think that's what's going to happen? No. I mean, yes, sort of, I guess. <laughs> Those are three answers. That was three answers. <laughs> Uh, I think that ends of ages are difficult, um, but they come with their benefits always. Uh, so like my favorite apocalyptic thing right now, and we write about it in the book is Mad Men. I think Mad Men is an incredibly apocalyptic story. It's about the end of an era and the beginning of another. And there are definitely downsides to the end of that era, but, um, there are definitely upsides to the end of it too. And I think the end of that show was really good at showing what like a, after the apocalypse renewal looks like. Um, so, you know, people have lost things, but they've also gained things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's like a really, I also think a kind of of six feet under as being in that same category of like, it's not about the apocalypse. It's about an apocalypse in a small way. Mm. And this family just encounters a real bad stretch, but it leads to something better. Um, and, you know, a lot of the drama of apocalyptic stuff is just in how do things end and then how do they begin? Do you think we're in the midst of one or we're approaching one? I think we're on the precipice, <laughs> I think. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know that anyone can diagnose this very well, uh, you know, while you're in the middle of it. It's like saying we're in a postmodern age. Well, like, how, really? Like, how do you know yeah, you're not no. just like in the inflection um, point? The best, the best phrase and the most inaccurate one is the post-racial. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, no. What a crazy. It's, and it's so silly to even say anything like that out loud. Uh, yeah. because you're going to 50 years from now, you're just going to laugh, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah. It's like watching people say like the, the end of the novel. <laughs> no, it's not the end of the novel. It's just a different kind of novel, hmm. you know, 50 years from now. Ooh. Yeah, when we're, you know, old people, I think we, like, 
for instance, I think the way that we see how we consume stories in all these different formats as being like the point at which we were moving into just a fully integrated uh, media consumption environment. But I have no idea what that looks like yeah. at all. And it's just everything moves so fast that it's hard to predict. Can you, um, so 50 years from now, yeah. you'll be 82. Yes. Looking back at 82, like, what do you want to see? Oh, boy. Uh, me or the world? You. <laughs> me? I don't know. That's such a hard question. We'll stick with you because the world, who knows? I don't I don't think ahead that far very much. You, you do think ahead within the next, yeah. like... Yes. Yeah, but I, I've never... I don't know. I think that... Um, but you have... I mean, I feel like you're someone who has ambitions, who has, like, very clear, like... Yeah. I want to do this and this. I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure I'm comfortable and stable here yes. while I'm doing the next thing. Yeah. It's all very pragmatic. It, that's, yeah. Well, so I think like if I was thinking from a work perspective, I'm really just, I would love to look back at what I did and see that it uh, in, like move the needle on a conversation, I think is how I think about it. I, I want us to stop having, a, I want, Christians in particular to stop having the same kind of starting point, which is, can you even make art if you are Christian, which is still a conversation people are having, which I just think is, is really bad for people to keep having and move it like one tick off of that, where it's like, of course you can, how do you do it well? And if I can get there, like if we can get to the point where you, people say Christian movie and don't roll their eyes real hard. You don't have God's not dead. Oh man, I could go for hours on that point. Yeah, that's just I everything about that movie disturbs me. Yeah. Um in big big ways. I think it's offensive to everybody. I would love to see us I think there are really great interesting rich stories about religion and religious stories being told right now. Um and some of them are by Christians. Um but a lot of it is just people who are just interested in the topic and recognize that like religion matters and how you like experience the world is an important thing and you can't just reduce it to non-religious ways. But I would love to see it being done by people with a variety of perspectives right. instead of like dogmatism or nothing. Hmm. So I guess we'll have to check back in 50 years. Yeah, we can do this in 50 years. All right, that sounds good. Yeah. I, hope, I hope the show's still going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Yeah, definitely. Well, there it is. You can purchase Alyssa's first book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World on Amazon or at your local bookstore. You can also regularly find Alyssa writing at Christianity Today, where she serves as their chief film critic. Lastly, if you're in New York City on July 28th, Keep an eye out for a summer conversation with critics where Alyssa will be on a panel with Wesley Morris, A.O. Scott, and Emily Nussbaum talking about criticism, entertainment, and movies at large. If you're listening, do be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting app. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any previous episodes, do consider promoting the show and sending it out on social media or sharing it with a friend. It helps us reach new listeners. If you want to drop us a line about anything, email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. Our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics and photography this week by Ian Jones. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. And I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash 
unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.